0: Hello to all of my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Happy Friday to each and every one of you. Hard to believe that this coming week will be the final week of January, being the first month of 2021. What a month it has been. But you know what? At the same time, uh, for those of us living in the United States, um, we did get to see some um, unique history uh, be made that is done once every four years. Either um, a new president is sworn in or the current president is um, sworn in for a second term. But um, it just so happens to be that this go-around, it's a new administration. And regardless of the circumstances, sometimes um, a switch in um, transfer of, um, not just transfer of power, but in terms of political party, is not always a bad thing either. But given the circumstances that we're in, um, it's probably not for the uh, bad, either. But that's as far as I'll go. Um, my podcasts, as many of you all know, are meant to uh, teach history, not uh, politics. But here we are again, discussing Peter L. Bernstein's "Wedding of the Waters: The Erie Canal and the Making of a Great Nation." Well, when I was with you all on the air of the previous um, time, um, I had mentioned at the very end that we had finished part three, and then I decided to throw in a little bonus and let you all know that there were a total of five parts to this book. So given that we just finished part three from the previous podcast, that now means we're 60% of the way through. Now we're on to part four, which is titled The Stupendous Path. What does stupendous mean? To me, it means challenging. Or it could be very um, difficult, um, a challenge that will either make or break what has already been accomplished, and whether or not what the task before us will sustain um, all previous accomplishments. Given that the Erie Canal, um, yes, it's supposed to be a landmark, um, a landmark. Um, Transportation measure or transportation project, and yes, it's already proven that. But in order for this canal to really become grandiose, there's one remaining part, and that's what this podcast episode is going to be focused on. So, our leadoff bonus question is the following Would commissioners and engineers together find the final leg? to completing the Erie Canal as being arduous. Arduous is another word for difficult or uh, challenging. Uh, the answer is yes. Now, we already know and I should say have established that the Erie Canal at this point has already connected the Atlantic Ocean to the inland waterways, being the Hudson River, up to Albany, and all the way into uh, Rochester and around the Genesee River Valley. So what is missing is between Rochester and Lake Erie. Engineers have to find a way to connect, not just Rochester to Lake Erie, but they've got to find a way to do it that's safe, and they've got to find the right linkage point so that um, in the end, uh, when the task is completed, and not so much completed, but once work has begun, they'll know what direction that water's going to be going in, because you don't want it to go against the current, but you want it to be flowing smoothly so that when boats go downward, or should I say downhill, they will have a... um, it won't be difficult going uphill against the current. So, for starters... First off, this is a very arduous process. It's going to be an arduous task, rather. So, for starters, there were two routes from Rochester to Lake Erie. But constructing this section alone required man's ability to avoid disaster. And how so when it comes to avoiding disaster? Well, avoiding disaster can mean a lot of things. Yes, you don't want to um, make any engineering flaws with how you're constructing the canal. But west of Rochester is a natural wonder. It is one of the premier natural wonders of the world. And my wife and I uh, went there three years ago, a.k.a. Niagara Falls. We're going to find out here um, soon why man... Not man, not so much man, but the engineers behind the Erie Canal were very, very um, fervent and adamant on not wanting to avoid disaster in the face of this natural wonder. I'm sure some people would say, well, if you don't want to um, run into disaster with a natural wonder like Niagara Falls, why are you even thinking about attempting construction? Well, that's a good question. But in order for the Erie Canal really to be successful, it's got to have a western-most um, terminus drop-off point. Think about this, folks. Lake Erie goes all the way into what we now know as Cleveland, Ohio. It even uh, goes into what is now what is uh, Detroit, Michigan. But Lake Erie has to have a terminus, uh, especially in New York State. Uh, because without a terminus, um, how will Lake Erie be able to connect into um, how will the canal be itself be able to connect with Lake Erie to where say immigrants and supplies going westward will be able to reach their final destinations into Ohio, Michigan, and um, Indiana? So in Illinois, but most notably Ohio and Michigan past. New York, and in uh, Pennsylvania, I should say, even though Pennsylvania is already established as a state, but of course Erie, Pennsylvania uh, is surrounded by Lake Erie. But the bottom line is you've got to think about westward, not just the terminus in western New York, but where you can go westward of what we now know is, say, Buffalo. So the most direct route from Rochester to Lake Erie, Given that there are two routes, um, I will um, talk about them here right now. The most direct route from Rochester to Lake Erie is a southwest course that leads into Buffalo. Now, while this is good for a direct route, there is a problem. Even the most direct routes, when it comes to transportation, have their uh, setbacks. Where would a setback be in this case? The disadvantage involves a summit, or let alone the highest point on the route, where the course would would be 75 feet above the level of Lake Erie. This prevented the lake itself from becoming a direct water source to the canal. The streams are too small. Well, if your streams are small, how is that going to ensure that boats are going to be able to um, move freely, along that section. Very likely if the streams are too um, small, that also means that, um, that boats could get stuck, boats could, um, could uh, what do you call it, flatten out as a result of hitting a rock below. So that's a huge uh, disadvantage right there. So what about the alternate route? The alternate route went directly west from Rochester, or I should say it goes directly west from Rochester and remains close to Lake Ontario's shoreline for 70 miles. The canal at at this point would make a 90-degree turn southward and move down to Lake Erie, 30 miles away, without requiring the use of locks. So... If I have to choose between the alternate route versus the most direct route, I think it's fair to say that the alternate route is better. I would say so. If anybody thinks the first route is a better choice, then um, something's not right. The alternate route obviously isn't as um, shallow, and um, it's um, and it's basically the alternate route has more. Um, advantages than the most direct route. You know, even in modern day times when it comes to transportation, in terms of getting somewhere from point A to point B, you know, uh, where my wife and I live, we live in uh, what's called Central Virginia, and uh, we live in Midlothian, which is not far uh, from Richmond. But where we live in relation to, say, Washington, D.C., is about two hours, depending on the traffic. Well, sometimes you never know what to expect on Interstate 95. So what would be a good alternate route? If, say, my wife and I were to go to D.C. anytime soon, and we wanted to um, cut down on traffic congestion on Interstate 95, the best way to go would be to start out going 95, but then get off on an alternate uh, route, being U.S. 301 it would cut out the entire capital beltway even though we might be driving a little bit longer i would rather cut out as much traffic on not only just on interstate 95 but cut out the whole capital beltway to where once we got into dc we would have um we would be saving on time that is we would we would be cutting down on time spent having to be stuck in traffic so well, yes, alternate routes might be a little bit longer, in the end, those alternate routes actually do save you time from not having to be stuck in traffic, or I should say gridlock. So um, here's another bonus question right here for you all. Would a 90-degree ni- turn southward heading down to Lake Erie become the most difficult and yet amazing feature to the Erie Canal as a whole. Yes. Let's talk about that. Commissioners and engineers both knew what the canal itself would come face-to-face with after a 90-degree southward turn, being that famous natural wonder, 17 miles west, a.k.a. Niagara Falls, A vertical climb over 70 feet. And geologically, the falls comprised mainly of solid rock. Well, my wife and I have been to Niagara Falls. We went nearly uh, three years ago uh, this spring. And when we went, it was cold. The falls weren't completely frozen, but at the base, uh, we, we saw ice. And we were on the American and Canadian side. Now, most people that I've met who've been to the falls have always said the Canadian side is prettier. But if you asked me uh, which side did I like, or I should say that my wife and I liked, we liked them both. Uh, They both had their advantages, but I know on the Canadian side it's more touristy. But either way, um, regardless of what side you were on, you got some awesome views. I mean, uh, we got awesome views, but anybody would. Now, I will have to admit that um, in the early 19th century, and even before then, Niagara Falls was not a tourist attraction like it is today. However, after the Erie Canal is, gets constructed, especially when it's completely done, it won't be much longer until Niagara Falls actually becomes a major tourist attraction. So, um, the alternate route with the 90-degree southward turn had more water, Lake Erie and Tonawanda Creek, versus its primary route. So, in other words, this alternate route going at a 90-degree southward turn has more water. Its sources are Lake Erie and Tonawanda Creek. And there is a little town outside of Buffalo known as uh, Tonawanda Now, who did the commissioners turn to for constructing or designing this uh, canal section? Well remember folks um, we don't have they're not turning to uh, corporations or private uh, companies. We learned early on that private companies in the eyes of the commissioners um, were not always reliable and in some instances they um, could have been responsible for delaying projects and that's smart because uh, You know, yes, we always would like to believe that outside sources can do the job. We've learned that sometimes in history that's not always true. So the commissioners were smart enough to have locals come join the cause and help build the canal because locals are the ones that know their terrain. They know how to go about hiring uh, people from within, and not just hiring, but how to bring teams of people together to get the job done from start to finish. So as for who the commissioners would have turned to for constructing, uh, or I should say, designing this part of the canal section, they turned to a 46-year-old native New Yorker named Nathan Roberts who hailed from uh, Canistota, or Canistata, which is outside of Syracuse. Mr. Roberts was very familiar with the Erie Canal in large part because he had been chief engineer on the section between Rome and Syracuse. So it's one thing to hire someone from the state of New York, but the, but even better, they've hired someone who obviously has expertise with the Erie Canal, and that's an even bigger advantage. Got to get myself some water here. Um, it's good to stay focused, but it's also good to stay hydrated, if you know what I mean. So Mr. Roberts himself knew that multiple locks would be required, given that boats had to maneuver up a 70-foot rock cliff. You know, to me, this sounds like a roller coaster ride, almost. Something that you might see at, say, a King's Dominion, a Bush Gardens, or, an, or a Six Flags. So many of you all, I'm sure, are wondering, um, how is this going to be achieved? Isn't this dangerous? I mean, is this the point where the canal's image could be destroyed if it doesn't go as planned? Well, uh, what's another phrase for multiple locks? Well, you know, when I think of multiple locks, I think of consecutive, uh, more than one. But, I may have answered part of the question right there, but let's find out the rest of the answers. So, flight of locks. Or let alone a consecutive series of locks where one lock rises immediately above the other, like a staircase. A flight of locks... You know, you've got one, starting out with one, then going up to the next one, and then up another. Yeah, I could definitely see this is like an elevator going from one floor to another. I also see this as like, you know, climbing a flight of um, steps when, say, going from one floor to another at, at a mall, at a big shopping center. So the current existing locks on the Erie Canal, at this time, prior to the Rochester-Lake Erie stretch, were 8 feet 4 inches high. That's pretty impressive. But the locks that will be constructed going from Rochester to Lake Erie are going to be very, very different. How so? Well, for Nathan Roberts the locks, in his mind, will have to become 12 feet high, being four feet higher than all the existing locks that are already in place. 12 feet high, including two adjacent sets of five locks. So what does adjacent mean? Uh, Side by side. They're not, you know, they're not far apart from one another at all but they're on the same congruent path to where they will uh, be in unison to avoid um, any kind of bad mishap from happening. True or false? Did Nathan Roberts' locks, did they carry the Erie Canal all the way up to the highest point on the Niagara Escarpment? Unfortunately, no. Or should I say false? However, will Mr. Roberts find a way to fix this problem? Absolutely. But before we get to that part, we should probably ask ourselves, how far did the five locks make it all the way up to, given that they didn't make it all the way up to the highest point on the Niagara Escarpment, being 70 feet up? Well, it turns out that his five locks made it up the, all the way up to 60 feet. That meant another 10 feet remained above the level of the fifth lock. 60 feet isn't bad at all. Now, if you look at it this way, you know, uh, 12 times 5 is 60. That means that um, that means that we're given that we're uh, 10 feet off. That means that each Uh, flight of uh, each lock flight of locks was uh, 12 feet above the other so in order to get to 70 feet we're gonna need at least two more feet per each uh, lock set why well 14 times 5 is 70 so how did Nathan Roberts modify the situation given there was 10 remaining feet above that fifth lock well, it would be easy to think, oh, uh, we just need to cut uh, two more feet here, two more feet there, and then we'll be good to go. That would be the um, best solution in a perfect world. But Mr. Roberts is going to do something that's very radical. Pardon me? He goes about cutting. with. This is with laborers, though, but he proposes... That his um, team of workers cut straight into the heart of solid rock. That is solid rock on the um, highest point of the Niagara Escarpment, where the channel was carved out to where it would carry the canal and the towpath for seven miles straight to Pendleton, which is a little, which is just smack dab um, where Lockport is. it was at Pendleton that the canal itself got connected to Tonawanda Creek, which flowed in a southwest direction and emptied into the Niagara River right near Lake Erie, 10 miles north of Buffalo. Now, in modern day... um, Geographical landscape, Buffalo is only 20 miles south of Niagara Falls. But, of course, in this day and time, the mileage would have been probably a little bit different, uh, given that, um, well, yes, there are some forms of sophisticated transportation for the day and time, most notably the canal, but we didn't have automobiles back then like we know today. And the Niagara River is... um, right near Lake Erie as a matter of fact that river flows into Niagara Falls and it is one of the it's a very very fast-moving river given that um, its level of rapids and currents are so strong that water flowing down into the Niagara Falls flows at um, it flows at a very rapid pace I'll, I'll tell you that much right there and, it, and thousands of gallons of water are going over the falls in a matter of seconds so this isn't your average uh, waterfall that's just taking a leisurely pace. Uh, so if you see it up in person, obviously with my, what my wife and I did three years ago when we, when we were in Niagara Falls, it was pretty powerful to watch that water flow um, downstream very, very quickly. And if, and if any of you all do go to Niagara Falls one day, I'm not trying to get off subject here, but I am just uh, want to point out something here. You, many of you all have probably heard heard about stories in the news from time to time where people have uh, performed uh, daredevil stunts, and those people are crazy to say the least. Uh, my wife and I on the Canadian side of the falls got to visit the um, visit a museum that was home to all the daredevil stunt people who um, successfully went over the falls. All I can say is that no matter how sophisticated your technology might be, especially in this day and age, there's no guarantee that that once you set foot on this journey that you'll come out alive safe. And uh, there was a very uh, powerful story. When we we were there, it was played in the theater. This incident happened, uh, it'll be 61 years ago this July. It involved a... um, a young boy named Roger uh, Woodard, I believe Roger Woodard or Roger Woodward, and his sister Diane, they're both still alive today. But back in 1960, they went on a um, on a uh, boat, and this was, this was just one of your standard um, basic boats with a friend of the uh, a dear friend of the family. His name was uh, Mr. Honeycutt. That's what I remember from the documentary. They were um, out on the Niagara River and unfortunately their um, motor um, hit a shoal to where they lost uh, power. And the currents got so strong that that, uh, that what do you know, they were all thrown out of their boat. And All three of them were sadly left to fend for themselves to where they uh, could not um, get to something like a a rock or even let alone hang on to a tree branch. As for Roger um, Woodward, who was eight years old, the fall, the river took him all the way to the edge where he went over the Canadian side. Eight years old, he had a life jacket on. And of course, even experts would have often had said, a life jacket alone, well, yes, that's great. It still would have been no guarantee for survival. Well, what do you know? At age eight years old, he unintentionally went over the falls and survived. Luckily, there was a tour boat right nearby that came to his rescue. As for his sister, she survived, but she was... Uh, less than a few yards away from going over the falls as a matter of fact She was about 20 feet away from going over the American side when somehow by a stroke of luck two uh, tourists went over the cliff Or went over the uh, tourism fence rail and ran all the way out to reach her and grabbed her by her wrist and saved her life Sadly as for mr. Honeycutt he uh, sadly lost his life They found his body three or four days after the incident happened. But uh, Roger Woodward and his sister, for nearly 30 years, were not able to talk about the event. It was that traumatic. Well, you have to remember, too, in that day and time, especially in 1960, there were no counseling centers to cope with this kind of grief. But then they somehow decided to come together in the early 90s, to finally open up about what had happened and go before the public and talk about their harrowing experience. Roger Wood, Woodward has often said that the good Lord above saved his life and that somehow it was really an act of God that he did not lose his life and, and that perhaps it just was not his time to go back in 1960. And what do you know, he is even a motivational speaker. So uh, more power to him and to his sister for overcoming um, this um, harrowing um, experience that, yes, would leave somebody like them in a state of shock and perhaps, yes, not want to be able to talk about it because of how painful it was, knowing especially that a friend of the families had... Um, lost his life while the children's lives were saved. So I guess my advice to you all is this. Definitely visit Niagara Falls, but don't be... Well, Roger Woodward and his sister weren't daredevils, but yet somehow God spared them from something that they didn't have control over. But my advice to you all is don't be daredevils. Don't go down... um, in a uh, sophisticated piece of technology, and think that if I go over the Ni- over Niagara Falls, regardless if it's on the American or Canadian side, that I will come out alive. There have been plenty of people who have, and there have been plenty of people who haven't. But all in all, my best advice is to uh, take a boat ride on the American or Canadian side. Unfortunately, we didn't get a chance to do that, but view it from a distance, and you still get a breath. You still get breathtaking views of a natural wonder of our um, great uh, country. So um, that's my, uh, what do you call it, tourism um, piece for this uh, podcast session. But back to our focal point here, Lockport um, is just north of Niagara Falls, and my wife and I have been there. And I'll talk a little bit more about that towards the end, but but what I'm going to be talking about right here is essential in regards to Lockport because it is the town where the construction began with digging a channel known as the Deep Cut that went through the Niagara Escarpment beginning in early 1823. So our next bonus question here is the following. Around, Around the time which the Erie Canal was being built, what did Lockport become known for producing electric power that was generated by surplus waters from the canal? Well, think about this, the water is being reused rather than going to waste. Deep Cut that began south of Lockport was nearly 13 feet below the escarpment's rim, but the next mile and a half, being the highest point of the Niagara escarpment, rose higher to where excavation was 30 feet deep. The escarpment's composition was very solid to where drill holes for blasting got broken. I don't believe these these people went to the um, went to like a Lowe's or Home Depot to get some power drills and start uh, drilling holes through this escarpment. This thing is solid, thick. Wouldn't it be safe to say at this point? Well, maybe you should give up and just let nature win here. That's part of man. I, I'll have to admit, maybe that's been part of man's problem for some for many of years. In that while man has made unique accomplishments. At the same time, there will be people who will say, at what expense did those accomplishments come at when it involved nature? Bonus question right here. Uh, given that the drills themselves became ineffective, what would be used instead? Gunpowder. Gunpowder did prove to be effective but it was very unpredictable, given that once the fuse, or let alone the fuses, were lit, explosions could send debris anywhere, including the streets of Lockport. So I think about, like, this um, gunpowder is like dynamite. Except um, in this in this day and time, or in, at the time that this was being constructed, they were actually um, using, um, like, a match or a... Um, or a, a stick with um, that would um, fire, that would um, light a fuse. Uh, th- they were using multiple things. And while, yes, all this, um, while the explosion would have worked, and it did, but where is that debris going to go? It's not going to go in one place. It could go anywhere. So how would the debris itself from the bottom of the deep cut get removed? How are you going to remove that? Can't You can't call it the Department of Transportation at this day and time, but workers who are out here have developed what's called a derrick. And usually when I think of a derrick, I think of um, an oil field or oil rig. But this was a boom for swinging buckets downward to where the uh, workers would collect shattered debris. After the channel was excavated... A towpath was carved from side roughly 15 feet or more above waters to where the level above water's level so that horses could provide a source of power for boats. Boy, I tell you, I don't know how those horses could do it. Those horses better have been in some good shape. That's a good example right there of maybe what's called survival of the fittest in these types of adverse, um, challenging obstacles. Now, how many years did the deep cut project uh, take, given that it started in 1823? Well, it took three years, and it was finally completed in June of 1825. And what's even more unique about this project was that nothing of this proportion had ever been attempted before. So, what major city in New York... New York State would become the um, westernmost terminus of the Erie Canal. Buffalo, New York. And my wife and I did go to Buffalo three years ago during our um, time spent in Niagara Falls. That is a great city that's in uh, Erie County. And, uh, you know, for a long time from what people had told me before that Buffalo... um, Buffalo had uh, lost a lot of uh, people who moved elsewhere, buildings closed. And then all of a sudden, um, the right people at the right time came along and decided to reinvest in the city. And from a few years back, Erie County was one of the faster growing cities or counties in New York State. So when my wife and I were there, we saw... um, a lot of unique uh, things, um, their unique breweries were there, uh, as a matter of fact, we went to a brewery, we even ate at a place in Buffalo known as the Anchor Bar, and what's unique about the Anchor Bar is that back in 1964, that is where Buffalo Wings, as we know, got um, invented. And as a matter of fact, they have a documentary on the Cooking Channel about how the Buffalo Wings were started in back in 1964. But if you ever do visit in Buffalo, definitely eat at Anchor Bar. Those uh, buffalo wings are really, really good. Now, by the 1820s, Buffalo has, is becoming a very, um, what do you call it? a um, It's becoming a city that is uh, attracting people. And it has expanded to where population reached 2500 now that doesn't seem like a lot but by the start of the 1820s for a city like buffalo to have almost halfway to three thousand people yeah that that's a big deal so the city has expanded to where yes the population has reached 2500 this includes five churches six schools a courthouse library theater masonic hall to 50 shops of various necessities that might as well be the equivalent of a shopping mall, or of how many shops are in a shopping mall, or a um, a prime outlet center. You also have Buffalo is also home to 17 attorneys. Now I don't know how many law offices that's going to equate to, but 17 attorneys. Well, they're not they're not all probably specializing in one field of law, but to have multiple lawyers to go to for various uh, matters is not a bad thing either. There are nine physicians. You also have roughly 11 inns to choose from. And believe it or not, you've got four newspapers to to turn to. So I would say that um, in Buffalo, you've got it pretty well made with all these um, options, not just options, but uh, services to provide. So in 1824... How many bridges would get built along the stretch between Utica and Albany? Uh, The number is between 275 and uh, 350. The answer is 300. These bridges helped connect farmlands and other properties which had previously been split by the canal's passage. And New York City is also uh, reaping in uh, the benefits as well. The city is continuing to boom with 3,000 new homes built. And then cities like Utica, Syracuse, and Troy. Troy is outside of Albany. A new measure comes into play known as a hydrostatic lock. What's unique about these hydrostatic locks are that they help measure water displaced by boats, which also enables how to determine boats, a boat's weight and toll costs. Well, you know, boats just don't come and go. They do have to stop. They have to, um, they have to what do you call it, be inspected in order to know how much they're, they're transporting, but also how much weight um, the boats are carrying with them for how much cargo is being hauled. I should also point out something that's unique about Troy, New York, is that... Um, a fellow by the name of uh, Samuel Wilson hailed from Troy. It turns out that his uh, nickname was Uncle Sam. How did he get the nickname Uncle Sam? Well, he um, helped out with the um, army during the War of 1812. He he did um, he held various posts, most notably uh, with packaging uh, the meat and um, supplies. Um, various supplies that would be um, placed into barrels and shipped to their um, destinations. But basically, Mr. Wilson looked after everyone. And um, the, for those who served in the military, I, I'm sure there there could be some other story versions to this. So, um, But the one that I do know is that he, um, given that he was from Troy, and he did help out immensely during the War of 1812 and looked after his fellow comrades that he did get the nickname of Uncle Sam. So when you think of Troy, New York, think of Samuel Wilson, a.k.a. Uncle Sam. Well, this is the last question for this um, session. It's going to seem like a bit of an odd one, but, um, but it's actually something that's very sentimental, not only to myself, but for my wife and I. When we um, went to um, Niagara Falls, in Buffalo uh, three years ago, which also included um, a day spent at uh, Fort Niagara, which is uh, north of Niagara Falls in the uh, Youngstown-Lewiston area. And Fort Niagara is very well worth visiting. It overlooks Lake Ontario. That same day, we visited um, at least three or four wineries on the uh, Niagara Wine Trail. One of them happens to be called the Flight of Five Winery. So is there a winery in New York State which honors engineering feats from Lockport? Well, as I said a second ago, there is a winery named the Flight of Five Winery. And I've got right here in front of me the two wine bottles that my wife and I purchased, a red and a white. And what's unique about the uh, bottles is that they have, each of them has a lock. In other words, uh, the, the red, the bottle of red has lock 67 and lock 69 is a bottle of white. And I'll read to you right here this. The Flight of the Five Winery An urban winery located at the edge of Lockport's historic flight of five locks on the Erie Canal. Basically just says here, is pleased to offer wines produced from the grapes of New York State. Now that might seem like a, um, something, you know, a bland, you know, description, all that. I look, I'm looking carefully here at the back, and it's a picture of canal workers from 1825. These workers were a part of something that was very grand, not just for the canal itself, but for building the final section of the canal that was the most difficult. But yet it somehow prevailed all because there were the right people in the right setting who made it happen. I've got Lock 69 right here in front of me which is titled Waiting in the Locks. What might that be? Well, Waiting in the Locks could mean waiting for a boat to um, come down all five flights as it departs. And then on the other side, a boat that could be waiting to enter to where it would be going up those five flights. So Waiting in the Locks is both directions, going down and up. And I think what was even more impressive about the Flight of Five wasn't just so much the wine itself but how the wine was brought out to us. It was brought out in a flight from top to bottom or you could say bottom to top but it was uh, comprised of locks 67 to 71 which are the only twin set of five locks built side by side in the United States. Now, that was impressive onto itself. The only thing I regretted that we did not get to do, because it was not in season, was to have taken an Erie Canal boat ride, especially here in Lockport. Uh, My wife and I do hope to get back up to the Finger Lakes one day here soon, and when we do that, we'll make sure to take an Erie Canal boat ride. Because no matter where you are on the Erie Canal, they do offer boat rides. Well, folks, we've covered a lot of ground tonight. Or wherever you are, it could be today. But regardless, we've covered a lot of ground. And I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. And we will continue to talk about uh, part four of the stupendous path. But the next uh, session, we'll talk about the actual dedication of the canal itself when it is when it's finally completed and the celebrations that um, that occur as a result of the canal's completion think about it we started in 1817 and we're now into 1825 I tell you it has been an amazing journey especially for those who Sacrificed so much in planning this, but yet never got to see the final uh, result. Most notably, Cadwallader Colden, who first surveyed the Mohawk, you know, River Valley back in seventeen twenty-four. He died in seventeen seventy-six. But thank heaven! But despite him not being able to see the end result, there are others who have, most who will, like DeWitt Clinton. Daniel Tompkins, even though he was a skeptic about it, but yet he will still be around to see it. Um, We also know that um, other um, leading politicians like Joseph, or figures like Joseph Ellicott, um, to Peter Porter, will be there to see it as well. Well, folks, uh, thank you again for listening. I look forward to being back on the air again here soon, and I hope all of you have a great weekend and continue to stay safe.